0: And welcome to UX Soup, a short-form podcast that looks beyond the buzzwords to give you the latest developments impacting the user experience of personal devices and services in the home, in the car, and on the go. As always, UX Soup is presented by Strategy Analytics, a global research and consulting firm providing our clients with insights, analysis, and expertise. Last week, we started our conversation with Dr. Brian Reamer from MIT talking about advanced vehicle technologies, advanced driver assistance systems, issues with how they are named and communicated to the driver, issues with dealers, public-private partnerships. Today, we are going to continue that conversation with him. And in this episode, we will cover some of the research findings that he had with naturalistic on-road data collection, some of the anecdotes that he found in terms of how consumers are using these technologies, Bit more about the public and private elements and how to move this forward, and where he thinks taxis and other automated driving features are going to evolve. So, this is part two of our talk with Dr. Brian Meemer. So, uh, has any of your naturalistic research shown that some of the impacts of using advanced vehicle technologies like L2, L2 plus systems increase fatigue? I was on a long drive the other day and using one of these torque-based systems. And after 30 minutes, I just felt very exhausted because I am there doing nothing. I am trying to pay attention because I don't fully trust it. Going around curves and seeing trucks in my way and now I'm going to torque here, but then I'm just kind of sitting there the rest of the time. What have you seen in terms of impact on fatigue?
1: Chris, I don't think that there's any science here yet. I think there is you know, growing evidence that using a, a driver assistance system, a level two system for extenuating periods is hard. And that's one of the reasons that most users are turning these systems on and off over the highway as they feel they need support, want a little relief from the driving task, but paying attention to the road is really difficult. So, you know, let's switch over to driving again. So we strategically turn the automation on at times to relieve workload and shift workload and change workload and perhaps a little too frequently to send a text. And we turn it off when it's getting too hard to pay attention and attend to the road without doing something actively. And that's the the proper utilization model that we see developing. The improper is leave it on all the time and and not pay attention to the road at all. We obviously see some of those extreme cases out there. So spent some time behind these vehicles as well. and, And I think the times that I've tried to keep the automation on the whole time for a long trip, fatigue does increase but that is not the predominant model i think that what happens is you turn it on for 5 and 10 minutes 20 minutes then you decide to pass it, turn it off pass a car engage you're changing this dynamic and the kinematics of driving here over time and that's why i said earlier is that automation is already reshaping how we move in the vehicle and in accelerating how we do that so when you you next time you get into a level 2 capable vehicle and begin to use the automation it's almost You want to use it as an assistance piece that you turn on at some points to experience and then turn off and drive again. And in most reports, people begin to talk about how that relieves fatigue, reduces workload and makes driving more enjoyable and more comfortable. So when it's hard to do something, it is fatiguing. But when you use that and you begin to thread that into your daily commute on and off when it's there to support me you know what, most reports are, most, again, anecdotal reports, is that it reduces fatigue. And I think that, you know, some of the science has got to be developed in these areas. And I, and I wish we had the resources to do it faster. The data sitting on disk, quite frankly, at this point. I guess that after doing your naturalistic data observations, you also conduct interviews. So I was curious to know what are the reasons to get distracted? What are the excuses or the justifications that you have heard behind those behaviors? <laughs> You know, Diana, that's a good question. I've, I've heard so many different perspectives that it's hard to, to summarize one here, direction here. But I think one's got to remember that while driving is a major safety issue on the global scale in global fatalities, as well as fatalities here in the States, one's got to remember that in the broad scheme of things, we travel a lot, Okay in between every adverse event that occurs on the road. So how many trillion V and T travel globally, and you divide that by the number of fatalities, you realize, that hey, we really travel a long way between something really bad happening. And we even travel a really long way before even minor accidents occur. So it's within those long travel periods, people recognize and, and do a lot of things they probably shouldn't do, pick up the phone, hundreds, thousands, if not millions at times, supporting that, hey, I can get away with this. Because the brain's tuned to saying, hey, if you did it once, I got away with it, I want to do it again, I want to fit this in, nothing happened last time, I'll fit this in again. And, and so we're providing the, the reinforcement that I can do this in the context of, you know, perhaps an overarching umbrella of education, in public service announcements that says, hey, this is probably a bad idea. So you know, we all know texting and driving is a bad idea. We know looking away from the road for long periods of time is bad, but we've all gotten away with it so many times that it's easy just to, eh, well, you know, nothing bad's gonna happen this time. And that's why I'm a strong advocate, especially under automation, partial automation, and really overall, to bring camera-based driver monitoring systems into the mainstream, Begin to set some reasonable red lines here of supporting drivers to make better moment-to-moment decisions. If the red light went on and said, hey, Diana, bad time to text right now, or you've been looking off the road for too long. and Forgetting about the auditory alarm perturbing the driver. If the red light went on and said, hey, just remember, bad idea, tapping you on the shoulder softly, it's amazing how much more effective you would get over time paying attention. And saying, eh, well, this reminder system clearly knows it's a bad idea. Just a tap back there. You know, we like to do the right things, but we just need some really subtle reminders to move us in the right direction. Long and short ago, you know, we used to get in the car and do all kinds of things, from drinking and driving to our seatbelts, that we abated over time by supporting a more cohesive and more well-rounded strategy to moving behavior over time. Now, some of that's enforcement. Some of that's public service, and some of that, at the end of the day, is silly little idiot lights that blink on the dashboard times. Have you ever taken a vehicle that you can perceive that the vehicle is doing funny things, not adhering to lane discipline, and then you see, well, yeah, he was on the phone? Sometimes I think these people should see themselves from the outside to really understand the impact of these distractions on their performance. Well, Diana, that's a good observation. I think that's a really important observation, especially in the team driver area and the developing driver area, is that we do have the technologies now, and you know we've done huge amounts of work in graduated licensure, slowly introducing people to the freedom of mobility globally. But imagine if you brought a data logger into a car. The car has all this technology now, and said, you know what? To get a driver's license, we're going to log all this, and you're going to experience some of what you're doing as a positive tool to motivate more effective behavior over a lifetime. And I think it's really important is that where we start is an indication of where we're gonna be able to get people to and, and looking to lifelong education here as a key piece. Many professions out there have continuing education requirements. You have to learn about stuff to grow as an individual, as an employee, as a contributor, as a member of society. Many countries out there, if not most at this point, you get your license at the age 16, 17, or 18, and there is no education requirement beyond that. It's all learn as you go, do as you want, just don't go outside the lines too far. And I think we need to revisit lifelong driver education to support consumer understanding, consumer responsibility, and to move the system forward you know, to really reduce the carnage on the roads. I'd love to be a supporter of Vision Zero. I think that the concept of trying to mitigate all accidents is a beautiful conversation. But how do we really set some really realistic targets at globally reducing auto fatalities by 5% a year? Okay, that's hard. But much like CAFE moved fuel economy in the States, if you set a reasonable and achievable goal, perhaps we can iterate forward from that. And while we love to take more carnage out of the roads in the next year or two, 5% a year, if you set 5% a year as your goal over 20 years, you've made a whole big dent at a major undertreated health crisis, and a major undertreated health crisis where we have many of the tools to do better.
0: So you talked a bit before about the collaboration between the system technology and the driver and using it sometimes and not using it other times. The average new car buyer in the U.S. is in their mid-50s. Have you seen age-related differences in terms of adoption of that cooperation?
1: Chris, you know, while we have hundreds of thousands of miles of data, when it comes to slicing and dicing this data by age, gender, culture, or other economic factors, it gets much more difficult. One of the reasons that I'm hoping that Advanced Vehicle Technologies Consortium, that, you know, that co-founded, continues to grow is that as the data gets bigger and richer, and we begin to have more ability to slice and dice that data, we can ask, answer some of those questions more effectively. It really is the need to get the entire industry working together pre-competitively under an umbrella to help scrape to some of the stuff together. And letting the data tell us which way to go at, at certain times as opposed to you know necessarily the questions that, that a design team may have or an engineer may have. The data tells a story, and it's really important to follow that data trail to understand things. That would never have seen the light of day and can lead to much more effective design strategies long term
0: one more question about so the the whole public private collaboration in terms of either continuing licensing education or in terms of you know nomenclature or other regulatory aspects of these systems it's so very obviously complex in the us you have 50 different states with their own laws you have u uh, k now different laws than EU has to have in other areas of the world. do you see that having that kind of public-private collaboration is going to be fruitful? who's in charge of that who's who's, who's yeah. working on that?
1: <laughs> it's an interesting question, Chris. and I think it's really difficult, especially here in the us where there quite frankly is a more adversarial relationship between the regulators and industry and an effort where many don't want you- For a lot of good reasons, the two sides don't like sitting down together and being transparent. And I think that we need to look, and and academia can play a very pivotal role in this is, is a neutral playing field, but I think we need to increasingly look at getting these two sides to communicate. The technologies we are talking about are so complex, not one individual can describe the characteristics, the technology backbone. All the fundamental components. It's an entire design and engineering team that is required to understand these technologies. Okay. No one has that single expertise, nor can the regulatory side understand what is the right and wrong answers in a lot of these pieces. You know, it used to be, you know, I'll use NITS as an illustration in the US. Hey, you went and did a bunch of small research projects trying to develop standards to build a new federal motor vehicle safety standard. We are now talking about. Problems that industry is spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to solve and has made engineering assumptions based upon considerable investment that can't be easily replicated, that needs to be communicated, discussed, and a reasonable red line standard developed from that. So it takes both sides, and it probably is going to require some neutral playing field to bring these sides together to communicate more effectively. And communication is the key, you can't keep talking past each other. I mean, I think that the consumer wants safer vehicles. We all have known someone who's been harmed or died in an automobile accident. Um, We've come way too accepting of the number of people killed on roads every year, but we also want more convenient and more comfortable mobility. And to do this and to balance these things together without every car being $100,000, which isn't practical either, we need to make some really good decisions as an industry, as a society, and need to look at some of the approaches to mitigate harm and make good safety benefit decisions. It's much like the FDA here. We have technology that needs to be proven transparently why it works and why it improves the system, and then we need to move that out into the mainstream. But we need to be sure that this technology improves. We can't hide behind closed doors and saying, we have data, trust us. There's a reason that many folks trust what the FDA approves for medical devices, pharmaceuticals, et cetera, in ways that wouldn't trust an experimental medicine. And we need to be much more transparent in that process that can help build trust in the system over the long time. Um, And I think one important factor here is that a decade ago, and we've known each other for several years, you heard me talking a lot about me, the future is autonomous, but it's going to take a long time to get here. And One of the folks who's been around this area for the best part of a decade saying, no we're not going to make any of our objectives in high automation not that i don't believe that robo taxis aren't going to come i do it's just going to take decades until those technologies and a fundamental business model can support those technologies in a way that reshapes how i live and move okay that means that the technology is going to have to continue to evolve the cost points of the technology reduced before i'm going to have the ability to take a robo taxi across boston at a price point, at or below Uber, or more effectively, than I'm going to get into my own personal automobile. So this is a metamorphosis of our mobility system that will take the best part of a century to fully unfold. And for the vast majority of that, automation is going to be assisting us as opposed to replacing us in many, if not most, of the trips we take.
0: So that a century of development is going to give you at the, with <laughs> the Advanced Vehicle Technology Consortium, a lot of work to do.
1: <laughs> well, you know, Chris, given how complex you know the human interaction with these technologies are, and how fast the technology is that we develop and deploy are evolving, it is really a continuous process improvement problem. You know, we look at when we began to collect data with super Cruise a couple of years ago, hey, that was the only system out there that was hands-free driving. And it's been for you know, the best part of three years now. But there are some other technologies for its blue Cruise, I believe the system coming from Jeep here that have leveraged some of the innovation and the lead characteristic that GM developed into their own facets of hands-free driving systems that take different design and development assumptions. Slightly different use cases and phenomenal engineering teams working on these technologies. But this is all a bunch of educated assumptions. How this all works when it gets to the consumer's hands, how this looks when you move from a Cadillac CT6 purchaser to a Ford F-150 purchaser, you know, is much the same as we talked about with Tesla a few years. You know, how is autopilot change when you move from the Model S, Model X consumer to the Model 3 consumer with, with a vastly different display characteristic? we need to understand this we need to understand what works and then we need to build from that faster and the key is you can learn a lot from looking and the industry needs to look together you know leverage synergies where we can to accelerate their competitive focus and boy it's fun watching this industry talk about problems that <laughs> hey we've seen this you've seen this we published this here we this data supports this and beginning to piece together better design strategies by having access to collaborative shared insight understanding that can come from real-world data.
0: I think that's a good place to end it. We're out of time. Thank you so very much, Brian, for joining us today. We really appreciate it.
1: Chris, thanks very much for having me and look forward to continuing the dialogue with the team at Strategy Analytics and in the global players in policy and industry out there to help move us and continually evolve us forward in striking a balance between our need to improve safety and our needs to provide more convenient, comfortable, and reasonably priced mobility.
0: All right, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Brian.
0: If you have any questions about Brian's work at MIT, his Advanced Vehicle Technology Consortium, or if you have questions for us about advanced driver assistance systems, automation, or anything regarding the automotive user experience, or if you'd like to send us any questions at all, you can email us at uxsoup. At strategyanalytics.com. The show notes on our podcast website, ux-soup.com, I have links to Brian's work as well as our recent research on the automotive user experience. There you can also connect with each of us on LinkedIn. A reminder that UX Soup is sponsored, as always, by Strategy Analytics. Check out the latest user-focused insights in mobile, automotive, and the smart home by visiting strategyanalytics.com. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.